you are listening to From Sobriety to Recovery with Jesse Mogul, episode 192. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to From Sobriety to Recovery. I am your host, Jesse Mogul. I am in addiction recovery. I am asking you to go on your streaming app and subscribe, rate, review. Allow other people to know this show exists. Um, algorithms still work. It's still a thing. And I have been noticing a lot of new people showing up to the show. And that is probably because those of you are out there talking about it. And whenever you subscribe, when you rate, when you review, the algorithm says, hey, look at all these people checking out this podcast. Let's introduce it to other people. And you'd be amazed how much helpfulness that can be to this show. And I have been doing this project recently where I'm going through my um, old episodes. I'm going to actually reshoot episode one and two soon. I want to reshoot the pilot because this show has turned into so much more than I could have ever have imagined. And then I'm also going to reshoot number two, which is the mini pathways um, to addiction recovery because I've learned so many new ways of discussing that and there's a lot more things that are happening. So somebody goes and finds a show and that's like a time capsule. It's like from three years ago. So not all of this information is as evergreen as I would prefer. So um, in this process of going back and looking over episode one and two, I've decided to go through and um, add in different things to the show notes for all the episodes, take away some of the clickbaity titles I was using a couple years ago and just have it exactly be what the episode's about. So like emotionally triggered versus emotionally grounded rather than, you know, something clickbaity like never argue again, right? Like let's just have it be what it's about. And so in this process of going through 190 some episodes, uh, I've just been tapping into some of so much of this old material that I've talked about. And it's all part of a bigger, wider project where I'm actually going to create a book of my top like 50. Right now we're aiming it at 50 episodes. So hopefully um, this is something I wanted to have done this year. A lot of things went down this year. So I said, okay, let's set this out for a 2023 project. So I'm actually writing um, like a an, an NLP um, coffee table sort of bathroom book that I'm putting out with my co-trainer who I teach NLP with, um, Aubrey Pohl. You'll recognize that name. She's been on the show. Um, we're actually writing a book based off of the class that we teach. Um, and then in the process of doing that, I'm also going to be creating this From Sobriety to Recovery book. So these are two big projects that I'm super pumped up about for the year of 2023. And part of that is going through and looking at these episodes and listening to them again. I've transcribed all of them so that I can now go through and chop them all up and turn them into a book for y'all. And the, That'll be available in 2023. And I'm super excited about that. And that leads me to today's episode. We're going to do a bit of a year in review and talk about some of the episodes we've done in the past, but we're going to, we're going to encircle it all around this idea of who do you want to be while you're doing this? And we'll expand upon it, but it's all going to be fueled around this idea of who do you want to be? 
is we get it in our heads that as we're going through this growth, as we're going through these changes in our lives, that it's like we're in a transition point. So we may not often be fully aware of who we're being toward ourselves and towards others as we are transitioning from, you know, a person who was addicted to alcohol or drugs or a person who yelled and screamed all the time. And now we're in this sort of chrysalis phase, like a caterpillar into a butterfly. Well, who do you want to be during this phase? Because you're alive. You're being somebody right now, right? You might have this idea of, I want to be sober for six months. I want to communicate better with my family. I want to show up more, um, to work on time and less disheveled, all of these thoughts and feelings that you have. But in the process of getting to this quote unquote destination, you're being somebody. And are you mindful of who you're being in that moment? Because this is extremely important because we could get into our car and say, um, the destination is the Costco. And we know the route and, you know, we've got girlfriend sitting next to me in the car. Now, who am I going to be on this drive to Costco? Am I going to be somebody who's talkative and starts up conversation and laughs and has enjoys the ride? Or am I going to be somebody who's pissed off at all the traffic around me, is upset about the weather, is cold, is feeling grumpy because I didn't eat enough food that day or I didn't get enough kisses the night before. So I'm going to be isolated and disconnected and I'm going to be this different version of myself than who I could be. And could is all subjective to your perspective. You have to ask yourself, who do you want to be while you're doing this? Who do I want to be while driving to Costco? The laughy, friendly boyfriend, or do I want to be the uh, quiet, isolated, and disconnected boyfriend? Either way, we're going to get to Costco. But what happens along the way could drastically um, create a different set of circumstances, a different experience of being at Costco, right? You get out of the car and you're laughy and you're happy, right? Now all of a sudden you're walking around Costco and you're continuing that laughy happy. But I could go to Costco and have been isolated and disconnected in the car the entire time. Now we're going to go in there. You think you're just going to flip a light switch and just immediately be laughy and happy and connected? Or do you think that your natural experience of what you did in the car is just going to carry over into Costco? Now you're walking in there and you're isolated and you're disconnected. Now it's just a miserable experience. And you are watching other people do this constantly. Right? You see those couples at the restaurant who seem like they're nonstop things to talk about and they're all super chatty. And then you see the other ones that are staring at their phone and they barely talk to one another. Right? Who do you want to be while you're eating dinner? Connected and loving or disconnected and staring at your phone and isolated? And this is why this is so important, because we can get it into our heads that we have this destination, six months sobriety. We have this destination, complete the 12 steps. We have this destination, um, you know, do the, do the inventory. And so who are you being during that? Because you don't just get to show up there and like whoever you want to be come at the end of that journey. Right, and there's all these little journeys, and and you know, life is a journey, not a destination. But there are little destination points. There are like rest stops along the way on the highway. Right, that's not where I want to. I'm not stopping at a rest stop and being like, "Sweet, made it to the rest stop. That's it. Let's just hang out here for three days and we'll go home." No, we're making it to Graceland. But who do you want to be along that trip? And there will be those little 
pause points where you can say, okay, well, who have I been up to this point? Am I happy with who I'm being? Am I content with who I'm being? Are the people around me feeling connected and a part of this journey with me? Are they feeling disconnected and confused because I'm not communicating with them what's going on in my life, what's going on in my head? They may not want to be a part of it. They may sit there and yell at you and say, I, this, isn't, this is your fault. You're the drunk. You're the addict. I don't have to do any of this crap. And they're right. They don't have to do any of it any more than you have to include them in it, any more than you have to continue to include them in your life. There will be some hard decisions to be made as you grow in your life on who you want to continue to have around you. And just like you will be making those decisions, so will they. And if who you're being while you're growing, who you're being while you're doing things is going to dramatically affect how many people want to be around you while you're doing these things. Just like it's going to dramatically affect how often you want to be around people while they're doing their thing. It can sound almost like a riddle, but I'm noticing this uh, not only in my own life, uh, but in the lives of the people in the tribe and you know, the meetings I go to, and I'm, I'm super involved in the community, and I'm just noticing it all around. Like, you have a choice. Like, we, you, you got to go outside and dig a ditch, right? Who do you want to be while digging the ditch? Pissed off and angry or happy and jovial? Right? It's like you think about some of those people who work in like the oil fields and stuff like that. Like they could be choosing to laugh and make jokes and, and you know, turn it into, you make, make the, what is it that saying is make the best out of a bad situation? Well, a bad situation is a judgment on your part. It is just, let's go dig ditches. That's, we got to dig a ditch. Now, is it going to be fun and enjoyable? We're going to share some stories and listen to some good music? Or are we going to be miserable and yell at each other the entire time? Either way, the ditch has to get built has to get dug. So who are you going to be? And as you're deciding who you're going to be, start to internalize where the shifts in you can begin to take hold. And this is a lot of fun because who we were, who, who we were back in our active using days is more than likely not who we're going to want to be in our sobriety and recovery days. But that's it. Those are programmed habits to be flustered or to be short-tempered or to lack patience, um, to be inconsolable, to be argumentative. Like those may have been some of the behaviors you adhered to whenever you were actively using. You're not going to want to be that version of yourself in sobriety and recovery patience and connected and loving and um, inspired or a peaceful um, or imaginative or being able to compromise. Like these might be more of the feelings and the thoughts you want to have about yourself. Those are going to be the actions you have. Right? If you used to be disconnected and now you want to be connected, then what are the actions that are going to instigate the feelings inside of you that you're being connected? And will the other person that you are seeking to connect with feel the connection you are seeking to create between the two of you? Because you might think connected is sitting on the couch and they might think connected is going on a hike. Have you had a conversation around your intentions? If your intentions are to be more connected with your, let's just go with wife because I'm a dude. Um, so it's like, if I wanted to be more connected to, let's just go with my girlfriend. Cause I have one of those. Let's, I want to be more connected. I might think sitting on the couch and holding hands is connected. She might think being in the kitchen and cooking together is connected. 
Now, if I never asked her, what would elicit connection within you right now in this moment with us? Then I'm just going to assume that my way of feeling connected is her way of feeling connected. And that's not the case. She might think, I'd rather cook with you. I might think, I'd rather hold hands with you on the couch. Okay, let's go cook, and then we'll come in here, and we'll eat the delicious food, and then we'll watch a TV show, and we can hold hands on the couch. And now we both get to feel connection. Now, I'm not saying I don't feel connected cooking, nor am I saying that she doesn't feel connected holding hands. The, the, uh, don't, don't get lost in the sauce here. It's important for you to take from this portion of the podcast that if you're not asking them questions to find out what will help you two connect in a way, then you're missing out on an opportunity to really make that connection. You cannot just assume that if you think you're being thoughtful by bringing flowers home, if I think, okay, I'm being thoughtful, I brought flowers, she might think thoughtfulness is actually bringing me a plant. I don't want flowers that are going to die. I want a plant that I can water and nurture and love like our relationship each and every day. I think bringing flowers is what makes me seem thoughtful and loving. She actually thinks it seems disconnected and like I wasn't listening because she's told me many times, I'd rather have a plant than flowers. Oh, so what I think I'm going to do to create connection is actually going against what she's told me and what she actually wants. And you can go read that love language book. You know, there's acts of service and there's physical touch and, you know, there's, um, oh, I don't remember them all now. Not the point. Point is, you can go look at that book. You can go Google the five love languages. You don't even need to read the whole book. Once you know the love language is pretty it's going to be pretty obvious which ones you adhere to and which ones they adhere to. So when you want to seem thoughtful or connected and you're going and you're doing something in the way you would want it to be done for you, that you're not doing it the way that they'd want it to be done for them, then you're just showing them love the way you want to be showed love, but you're not showing them love the way they want to experience love and you're missing the connection. So when you say, okay, Jesse, so how do I want to be while I'm reconnecting with my loved one as I journey through sobriety and recovery, that's where the conversation needs to happen. That's where the communication opportunity is. And this is going to be something that's going to stop you, is the fear of feelings. All these feelings. It's the fear of feelings. It's it's, it's funny because fear is a feeling and that we're afraid of feelings. The worst thing generally, and I, I want to be very mindful not to make this a universal quantifier using words like always and never and every time, but I'm going to be very, very deliberate with my words here. Frequently, like most of the time, the worst thing that can happen is a feeling. The worst thing that can happen from an action you take, there's going to be some thoughts and some feelings. All right. I go back and I think, and let me throw out a few examples here of the worst thing that can happen is a feeling. All right. I go back to like being in high school and having, I, I, I remember middle school, had a huge, huge, huge crush on this girl named Alyssa, huge crush. Uh, and I'm like seventh or eighth grade. I don't even know what crushes are. I looking back at it, I was you know, just just a little kid, you know, didn't even know what hormones were, and huge crush. Now, I'm pretty positive at this point in my in my years, and I've actually ended up getting to know this girl in, in high school that she was not she did not share that crush. There was no part of her that shared that crush in middle school, All right? But I also don't ever really remember asking her out, and I remember not asking her out because I was afraid of being told no. 
Now, why was I afraid of being told no? Because there was going to be a feeling associated with the word no, feeling rejected, feeling not good enough, feeling um, that I was less than, you know, questioning what could I do to make myself more, you know, uh, pleasant to this young lady in order for her to like me. So now I feel unlikable and all these feelings. And I never asked her out. So just that weird seventh grader who just looked at her a lot, right? Which wasn't going to help the situation at all, right? But back then I was like so afraid to just ask her out because one way or another, right? So you're told no. Okay, well, that's, that's a bummer. I guess I'll have to go like somebody else now because I'll have to go meet somebody else and, and, and try to see well that will go. I never asked her out. So I was just this creepy little seventh grader who just stared at her a lot. And where did that start to manifest later on in life, right? How many times did I see a pretty girl across the bar? How many times did I see a pretty girl in class and didn't go up and ask her out because I was afraid of being told no because I would have to feel some negative emotion. Now at 46, I've moved through all of those. I mean, yes, I'm in a very loving relationship. So I have a girlfriend now, so I don't have to worry about going out and meeting anyone. But before I met her, I was not at all afraid to ask girls out, whether it be on the dating apps or whether it be out in person. If I saw someone that was visually appealing to me, I went right up to them and just started talking to them because the worst thing that was going to happen, and again, this was in sobriety, the worst thing that was going to happen is they're going to look at me and be like, thank you next. Okay, cool. I mean, not everybody's cup of tea. But I'm also 40 years old, and I'm like, you know what? Seize the day, carpe diem, you only live once kind of shit, right? When you're younger, it's almost like you feel like you've got an infinite amount of time, and you want, so you sit in these negative emotions that suck. Instead of just taking the action that would at least give you an answer. Right? Didn't take action in seventh grade. That actually manifested itself a lot when I got to college, right? Rather than asking out girls that I thought were attractive, I just showed up with all the party party supplies. So I had all the drugs, I had all the alcohol. Inevitably, the girls who were into drugs and alcohol would come up to me. You know, they start showing me interest, probably because of the drugs and alcohol, right? But at least I didn't have to feel the rejection. I was very, if I knew a girl already liked me, that was the girl I was going to go up and talk to. May not have been the best match for me. But you know what? I was 18 years old. So I'd rather go with the I'd rather go with the quote unquote sure thing than have to step outside my comfort zone and actually go up to someone I found attractive, even though they may not even know I exist, and ask them out. Because you know what? The best thing, the best case scenario was that they said yes. Right? But we think the worst case scenario is that they say no. But the worst case scenario is actually that we miss out on the best case scenario. That's the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario to you stepping into sobriety and recovery, all fucking in, man, all in. The worst case scenario is that you do not get to experience the pure vibrancy that comes from waking up every single day sober without a hangover, clear-headed, clear-hearted. That's the fucking worst case scenario. Not that you'll lapse, not that you'll relapse, not that your husband or your wife won't embrace this new you, not that your job won't take you back, or not that you won't be able to go back and make amends for all the wrong that you've done. Those are all things, absolutely. But the worst case scenario is you miss out on the best case scenario, which is just getting to live a life where you're not constantly afraid of how you're going to behave at night. 
we think, oh, the worst case scenario is I get sober and that my wife doesn't take me back, the job doesn't take me back, the, 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 the dog doesn't take me back, like, you know, we're reversing a country song or something. But no, that's just a scenario. But that's not the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is that you don't get to experience what life can be like not being intoxicated. Yes, we want some of those other things. We might want our partner to take us back or the job to take us back or the dog to take us back. But if they don't, that doesn't discount the fact that we're at least living a life sober. There's a show on um, Prime called Outlaws that I'm watching because um, this one particular actor, oh my goodness, I don't remember his name. Anyways, he's a very older guy now and he's been in a ton of shows. And if you go and look at Outlaws, you'll know, you'll recognize this old white guy's face and be like, oh yeah, that's totally why he's watching this show. Um, it turns out I love all of the people who are in the show, but I'm specifically wanting to talk about this one woman who plays like a lady, something highfalutin, rich English chick. And um, she goes, she gets sober and she's no longer doing cocaine. She's no longer drinking. And then she tries to hook up with her ex-girlfriend again. And it turns out her ex-girlfriend is engaged. So she's been sober for X amount of time, not drinking, not doing drugs. She's so happy to tell her ex-girlfriend this to get to hopefully that they become girlfriends again. And they don't because she's engaged. And so it's not going to work out. In the very next scene, she's you know ransacking her flatmate's house trying to find her bag of coke and all of, all of his booze. And so, so now the, that's, I mean, that's horrible. All that sobriety gone because she didn't get the answer that she wanted. So to her, the worst case scenario was that this girl said no. Not that the worst case scenario was that she would blow up her entire sobriety. She allowed somebody else's decision toward her to determine whether she was going to continue being sober, clear-minded, clear-hearted, and moving her life in a positive direction. And this character had done a lot to move her life in the positive direction. But she did not get the response she wanted from this person. So she went out and got her drugs and got her booze and tied one on. And then you know, I, she, she's causing a lot of mayhem now in the show. It's almost to the end point. It causing a lot of mayhem all because she did not get told by her ex-girlfriend that she wanted to get back together. So instead, she goes off and gets messed up. And so she saw that as the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario is this girl says no to me, and I guess I'll just go back using. Instead of seeing that the worst case scenario would actually be that she would start using. Like, that's the goal. Her primary goal should have always been sobriety and recovery. If this other woman wanted to get on board with her life in sobriety and recovery, great. If not, all right. There's other people out there. One person's I never want to see you again is another person's I've been looking for you everywhere. Write that down on one page. Not everyone will like you. Not every job you take what you'll enjoy. You don't not meant to. So when we say that we are focusing our intent on who we want to be while we're doing something and that the worst case scenario is that we miss out on the best case scenario, we want to have a very clearly defined what do we think the best case scenario is. Right? You're seeing somebody from across the, the room and going up and talking to them to ask them out on a date. And you're like, oh man, best case scenario is we get married and have babies. Whoa, jump the shark a little bit. You don't even know their name, let alone if your personalities are going to click. I might think Cindy Crawford, when I, was, when I was a teenager, I thought Cindy Crawford was amazing and I infatuated over her. You can um, generally tell when a man was a teenager based off of who they respond to this question. 
uh, who is your favorite supermodel? Generally, that answer to that question will tell you exactly when they were going through puberty. And mine was Cindy Crawford. I don't know if I would have enjoyed talking to that person. I don't know if she would have been a good mate. I have no idea. But I see a picture and I think, well, she's she's visually attractive. I'm going to be like, oh, if I ever met Cindy Crawford, I'd marry her in a heartbeat. Is that really true? Or would there be things about her that I would detest and I would no longer, I would like, oh, never mind. This was not the person I thought they'd be. So we think walking up to that person and asking them out on a date, best case scenario is that we fall in love and we have babies or buy a house or get a dog, whatever. When in that moment, best case scenario is that they just want to have a conversation with me, that I get their number, that I'm able to have another opportunity to talk to them past this one moment I'm get about ready to create. Going to a bar because you want to, or going to a party for Christmas, right? The best case scenario is that you leave that place sober. Anything else that happens in between is just what happens. And that's when you can say, okay, what person am I going to be while I'm at this Christmas party? Right? I'm going to be the person who's sober. I'm going to walk around and talk with people. I'm going to be very intentional about my behaviors. When we're drunk and using all the time, we're not intentional. We're reactive. Right? We're muting our feelings. Heaven forbid we feel anything. Right? And if we do feel something, it's being felt through the lens of, of addiction and intoxication. So we're not even really feeling it the way that we would be feeling it otherwise, like in a sober state of mind. So who are you going to be? Who are you going to be while you're at this event? Again, for you non-linear listeners, it's not even Christmas anymore, but it is Christmas in two days. So I'll keep using that as an example. Who are you going to be? during Christmas dinner? What are you going to want to talk about? How are you going to behave? And where are you allowing yourself to be afraid of a feeling that's holding you back from saying something or doing something or being the version of yourself you want to be? Because the worst case scenario is you have a feeling. It'd be like, okay, this one time in Santa Clarita, my girlfriend and I went on this Christmas train ride. I think it was around Christmas. Pretty sure it was. Um, and it was a murder mystery. No, it was, it was a murder mystery dinner set around Christmas time. And it was Christmas time because at some point, the actors started singing Feliz Navidad. And nobody else. And they were like, come on, everybody now. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. I don't know all the words, and I will explain to you why this is important. Nobody was singing with these people, and it felt I felt bad for them. I felt like, man, this has got to suck. You're sitting here. These people, we all paid like 50 bucks to get on this train. The food was rather delicious. Everyone was drinking. I was like one of the very few people not. I mean, everybody, all the tables around us, we got to become pretty good friends with. And they were drinking. And I was not. <laughs> and so basically, I'm painting you a picture here of like, I'm the sober person around all of these drunk, intoxicated people. And Felice Navidad comes on now. I would have assumed everybody started singing Feliz Navidad. It's, you're in the moment. Let's be in the moment. Let's not worry about these strangers judging you for singing. But nobody would sing. Nobody was singing. So I started to sing. And then I got really excited. So I started to sing louder. And then the actors, they moved really far away. And so there was nobody singing on my end. So I started singing really loud. And... I remember in that moment being like, this is, this is why I'm here. 
to be in this moment, to have this event. I don't care if these people think that I'm ridiculous or they, they're embarrassed for me or they think I'm a bad singer. Like, it's a song. The music's playing. These three actors or how many ever there were, they're singing. This is the portion where we participate. Let's sing. So I sang and I don't know the words. And, I, and I'd even like, blah, 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 infelicidad. Like, I just went with it. And those around me who were not prone to doing this, right? They may have been like, wow, this, this guy's humiliating himself. But I didn't choose to feel that. I didn't feel humiliated. I felt like I was enjoying the moment. I felt like I was immersed in this murder mystery Christmas train dinner party. I had a blast. It's still a story that the girlfriend and I tell. She'll bring it up. She'll be like, oh yeah, he was just singing at the top of his lungs. So like, I'd have been so humiliated. I would, that was, I would never embarrass myself like that. Like, that's not embarrassing. It's not humiliating. That's awesome. You're in the moment. It's like going to a concert and dancing. I don't care if people think I'm a good dancer. I'm at a concert. I'm dancing. And by the way, I don't know any of you. (laughs) I was at Pearl Jam and Killers and 21 Pilots in like nine days. I I saw all three of those bands. And I boogied. I jumped up and down and I danced. And there was people dancing around. And there was other people who just sat there like lumps on the log. And I'm not always dancing. Sometimes I'm just sitting there enjoying the music. But other times I'm waving my hands in the air and I'm boogieing. And yeah, I mean, I got about as much rhythm as you'd expect a you know middle-aged T-swam to have. And it's just like, hey, be in the moment. Enjoy it. When I used to go raving, I would dance. Just dance, 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 dance. And sometimes I'd look back and I'm like, I should have danced more. If I could go back in time, I wouldn't have danced less. I would have danced more. I'd have put more glitter in my hair. I'd have worn more glow-in-the-dark bracelets. I'd have drawn more highlighter pen all over my body so that the black lights lit it up. I'd have been more ridiculous. Enjoy these moments. The worst thing you can have is a feeling, and who on earth would choose to feel embarrassed or humiliated for enjoying themselves, especially when you go somewhere where there's just nothing but strangers? Think about when you get sober and you're in sobriety and recovery and you like go to a bar and the, you know, the bartender or the waitress rolls up and you're with a bunch of people or it's just you and your partner, you and your friends you went with, they all know you're sober. And you're like, oh, I'll just take a soda water. And it's like, oh, I'm so embarrassing. I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out with all these drunks and here I am just ordering a soda water at a bar. Fuck that, man. <laughs> it's not my fault that the only place I can go to watch football and yell and scream at the TV and cheer on my fantasy team is a place that serves alcohol. They don't, nobody is building an entire restaurant up around all these TVs and not serving booze and and having people roll in to watch football. It's like, that's what they're going to do. Society has built this up. If I want to go somewhere and watch a sporting event, I've got to go to a place that that where most of the time, not all the time, I've got to go to a place where there's people drinking alcohol. But I'm not embarrassed that I say I want a soda water. (laughs) I want a soda water. I don't have any emotions around it. Not embarrassment, not confidence, not happiness. Maybe a little bit of happiness because, hey, fuck it, I'm sober. But it's like, I'm neutral. I want soda water. I'm not like, oh, this person was probably hoping I'd rack up a $100 bill on beer and vodka shots so that they could make a bigger tip. Hey, I'm, I, I'm here to, do, to watch the game, spend the money I spend, and tip you off of that. Oh, don't worry. You're, if you're attentive and keep my soda water full, you'll definitely be getting a 40% tip from me because instead of spending $100 on booze, I've only spent $30 on food. I got plenty of money to tip you. You should be more concerned about that person over there on their 11th shot of Jaeger. 
right? They're half cockeyed when they see the receipt, and they're just scribbling all over it. And before you know it, you got five on 100. At least for me, you know you're going to get a good one. But that's the thing, guys. Y'all can choose to feel whatever you want to feel while you're being the person you want to be as you're becoming who you're going to become. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And as you wrap up this year, and you really look back on what you've achieved or the things that you wish you would have achieved, you know, all any of those kind of emotions around that. I just want you to write it down on a piece of paper. Who do I want to be while I'm blank? Who do I want to be while I'm working my way through the steps? Who do I want to be while I'm driving to Costco? Who do I want to be at this dinner party? Who do I want to be? And then be intentional with your actions. If you say connected, if you say loving, if you say these things to yourself, I want to be connected, I want to be loving, do you have a parameter for what that is going to look like and feel like and sound like to you? And do you know how it's going to look and feel and sound to the other person that you're doing this with? Have you had that conversation? And this is where I brought up the feeling part. One of the reasons that we get so afraid to have these conversations is because we're afraid of the feeling that might come from them. I've had some tough conversations with a girlfriend about what's going on in, in my own life and in my own recovery. And it, no, I don't always get the response that I want, but at least I got a response. At least now I know where she stands. At least now I know her perspective. Whether it, whether it elicits happiness or sadness in me is a choice that I can make. But if I didn't have the conversation at all, then I'm just throwing darts in the dark. Then I'm trying to show her connection and love when that may not at all be what she's going to experience from that. The worst thing that can happen is a feeling. So talk to the people around you. Find out what it's like for them to feel loved and connected or a part of your sobriety and recovery journey. And then ask yourself, who do I want to be as I'm going through this? It's extremely important because if you're not intentional with that, you could be short-tempered, you could be isolating, you could be disconnected, right? And then you think, well, I'm going to work my way through the 12 steps and I'm going to come out on the other side of this and I'm going to be completely connected. I'm going to be completely loving. I'm going to, it's like, I'm just going to pop out of this cocoon and I'm just going to be this magical butterfly. But if all the other people around you have felt is disconnection and disassociation and a lack of desire to include them in it, and then all of a sudden you've made it through your steps, you've made it through this part, and now you're like, all right, guys, that's it. I'm the butterfly now. Let's all be awesome and loving and caring. And they're like, well, we haven't been a part of it up till now. Why all of a sudden do you want us to be a part of it now? You stepped away and you did all of this stuff with these other people and these meetings, and then you came home and you shared nothing with us, and now you're through it all, and now you're like, Mom, here, party! Let's be awesome with each other. It's like, well, (laughs) we've been sitting over here waiting for you to invite us to participate in this whole thing, and you never did. Or you didn't ask us how participating with you would have looked and felt, and you didn't articulate how participating with you would have looked and felt. Because it's not just their way of interpreting participation that's important. It's you letting them know what their level of participation is important to you. It might be like, hey, I want to go to these meetings. I just want to work with all this stuff. And whenever it's all said and done, um, we'll talk more about it. 
But for now, who I want to be for you when I come back from these meetings is I want to be connected. I want to be loving. I want to be supportive. I want to show you that I'm somebody you can rely upon and trust again. What would those kind of behaviors be for you? What would allow you to feel loved and connected and and where I'm reliable and trustworthy? Then they're going to give you some responses. And then you can choose to do those things or not. But at least you know what their convincer strategy is what they need to experience from you in order for them to believe that you're working not only on yourself, but on that relationship. Because we're not growing um, through our sobriety and recovery in a bubble. We don't just get to do it on ourselves. Even if you were to go away to a treatment center, that is a bubble that's been created, but now you're just doing it with all these other strangers. And depending on how much contact you have with the outside world, they're being allowed to integrate at whatever speed the treatment center is doing it in. So are you writing letters so that they feel more connected to you? Or whenever you talk on the phone, are you discussing some of the cool things that you're learning about yourself? Are you, are you discussing some of the behaviors that you, that you and your family used to participate in and how maybe you're not seeing it as, as productive as it could have been or how bonding as it could have been? Are you taking on personal responsibility instead of blaming and complaining and making excuses for your behavior? Are you saying, okay, those are the things I did then. I did them because of X reasons. I'm no longer going to allow those reasons to control my life. Sure, mommy and daddy didn't love me and they didn't look at whenever I said mommy, mommy, daddy, daddy, look, look, but that's not who I want to be anymore. And I'm going to be talking about some deeply emotional stuff on my end. And I'd really like to know how this would be best approached. It's having these tough conversations, which you again are choosing whether they're tough or not. And the worst thing that can happen is a feeling. You share something and they look at you like, wow, dude wow what's there's a meme where it's like a, a dog and like a dachshund or something that's got his eyes all big and it's like <laughs> my emotional my, my my emotional support dog realizing that shouldn't have taken this job something to that effect right like something that's gonna come out of my mouth that you may not be thrilled with but that's okay because i gotta speak my truth i gotta i gotta i gotta let this stuff out also being mindful that not everybody needs your truth Not everybody is worthy of your truth. This radical honesty thing that we start getting taught in sobriety and recovery, it's it's not for everybody. Not mean like it's not everybody shouldn't do it. We should all step into some level of radical honesty, but the the waitress doesn't need to know about my addiction in order to justify me wanting soda water. The waitress doesn't need to know that I don't pay for other people's alcohol. Therefore, please separate everybody's booze off the bill or just put my food on my own check. Like that doesn't need the whole story. Just like, hey, can you separate this pasta primavera off onto my own check? I just need to pay my own way. I don't need radical honesty for everybody. I don't have to tell, you know, the deli supervisor or a client or somebody all of my truth. Your vulnerable, deepest truth is it is earned by people, not just thrown about. Some people just, they don't even know what to do with it if you gave it to them. So you can be mindful that, yes, you, want to, you don't want to, you're not looking to lie to people, but you don't have to give people all of your truth. They have to earn that. You are worthy. If no one's told you that up to this point, then I want to make sure that I'm somebody who has said it to you. You are worthy. You're not trying to prove yourself to anyone can look in the mirror and ask that person, have I proven myself to you today? That's who you want to be. Each and every day you look in the mirror, that, that's the person 
you want the most love and support from. That's the person who's going to be there through thick and thin. Other humans have their own agendas, but that person in the mirror, there's lack of a better way of saying it, you're stuck with them. Are you happy with who's looking back at you? And if you're not, then there's probably some disconnection between who you want to be while you're growing, who you want to be in this life, who you want to be in this situation, and who you're actually being. That's that cognitive distortion we talked about in the previous episode. And we've talked about a lot of of topics this year, so many topics. And cognitive distortion is one of them. Looking in the mirror and thinking you see one thing, but actually seeing another. We've got the confirmation bias where you start to, you actually will start to put in your head, you'll be confirming some of these thoughts. Oh, I'm a loser. You look in the mirror and you want to be a winner, but you see a loser. And now your brain starts to confirm this idea that you're a loser by looking for ways that it can prove that you are. You go back to episode 152, you can dream again, right? By, by shifting the way that you're framing yourself, reframe the way you see this sobriety and recovery journey. Who do you want to be? The worst case scenario is that you have a feeling. Right? I mean, the worst case scenario, you climb up a tree without some sort of support harness and you fall. Yeah, there's a lot worse. You know, you're going to break something you do with that. But generally, in our world, when you go to take an action, the worst case scenario is that you have a feeling that you have you have yet to figure out a healthy way to process through. You're not generally doing things where you might break an arm. Generally, you're asking somebody for something. You're 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 trying to participate in a connection moment, and yeah, they might say no, but they might say yes. And if they say no, you're still in the same place you were already, doing it on your own or figuring out another way of doing it. They say no, they say no, but if they say yes. (sighs) Episode 153, we talk about impermanence. And I remember this came from a Dharma recovery uh, meditation, right? These feelings, we're so afraid of feeling them because of some level of permanence we've attached to them. But feelings and thoughts aren't permanent. We keep circling back to them over and over and over again. And that's what makes us think that they're permanent. Traumatic things happen to us in our lives. Traumatic things happen to you in your youth, in your teenage, in your 20-somethings, wherever you're at. Traumatic things happen. They become trauma when we ruminate and ruminate and ruminate, and we keep revisiting that traumatic moment, keep revisiting it over and over and over again. You know, it's like uh, my dad spanked me with a belt when I didn't get straight A's, right? So that was a traumatic moment. And then I kept ruminating on Every time I went to go take a test, I was like, God, I better do good. If I get a, if I get a B, I'm going to get spanked. I kept reinforcing that traumatic moment and turned it into trauma. And when I didn't bring home, you know, the grades he told me to bring home, then I got the belt. And then it reinforced the traumatic moment. It became long-form traumatic moments. And then I'd go to school and I'd be like, you better take good notes. You better listen to the teacher. You better get good grades because if you don't get good grades, you're going to get the leather belt on a bare ass. And you don't want the leather belt on the bare ass because then you cry. Then he's like, what are you crying about? What are you crying about? Why don't you stop crying? I'll stop spanking you. I'm like, what kind of fucking weird-ass mind game are you playing here? You get the belt, so I start start crying. You tell me if you tell me to stop crying, so I stop crying. Then you spank me. I start crying, and you tell me you're not going to stop spanking me until I stop crying. What like weird shit's going on here, right? But I kept looping that back and over and over and over in my head, and it became the trauma that I had to heal from in my sobriety and recovery. 
right? Feelings and thoughts, they aren't permanent, but we make them permanent by continuously going back over and over and over again in our head, creating meaning around them that may not necessarily be true, start attaching other events in our life to that traumatic moment. This is how trauma grows and grows and grows. And something as simple as, you know, um, dad leaving me at home while he went fishing becomes this whole, um, dad's always going to leave me. Dad's never going to be there to support me. Dad's only there to punish me. Dad, so that means that dad's a punisher. That means that I'm not worthy of love because my dad never showed me love. He just left me behind or punished me. Right. And this becomes those daddy issues that you're still contending with in your forties. None of this has to be permanent. I made it permanent by continuously ruminating on it. Thoughts and feelings by their essence are impermanent. Go listen to 153 for more information about that. 156, your impact tree. Who are you impacting? How many different lives have you impacted as a somebody active addiction? How many lives can you impact as somebody in active recovery? It's absolutely fantastic. Alcoholic versus addiction recovery. I know that one got started because I went to an AA meeting and I felt super weird saying that um, I'm Jesse, I'm in, an, um, I'm in addiction recovery. Because I had said that so many times in previous shows to do that. And I did it in my early stages when I would go to certain meetings, but this was just different because I'd only been to this AA meeting once here in Huntsville. It just, it felt different. It felt weird. I don't go to that meeting anymore because it's Saturday morning at like 9 a.m. and I'm sleeping in at 9 a.m. on a Saturday. That's just rest time. Um, But at the same time, it's just like, you know, I would go back to that meeting. I have nothing against um, 12-step meetings. I actually quite enjoy them. It's just a cool, fresh perspective. But I remember that episode was sparked because of um, how I felt when I said that. Um, Nothing is wrong with you, episode 159. Nothing is wrong with y'all. Nothing is wrong with us. Even if you've been doing some of these things I talk about in this episode, right? You've been allowing feelings to hold you back. You haven't been conscious of who you're going to be while you're maneuvering your way into this new life. Nothing is wrong with you. You're doing the best you can with the resources you have right now. You're going to be picking up new resources. You're going to be shifting your emotional state so that you can, you know, you can be more flexible and that you can behave and act differently. Your thoughts and your feelings are going to shift and change. Right? When I was seven years old, I was totally into Transformers. Forty-six years old, I'm not into Transformers anymore. Your your interests that you had when you were an addict are not going to be the same interests you have as somebody in sobriety and recovery. I used to watch all sporting events. I would watch any sporting event on TV because it was justification to drink. Now I am solely an NFL and college football. I am a football person. Occasionally I'll watch some March Madness. Didn't watch the championship at all last year. Barely paid attention to basketball except for maybe the Mavericks because my dad likes them and my brother does too. And I watched a few of the games when I was there visiting their houses. But once I leave, I don't come home and turn those games on. I have no interest. Barely watched the World Cup. Sorry, World Cup. Should have happened in July, back when there was no sports. I don't have more. I didn't have more time for for soccer. Barely have time for football. I'm running five fantasy teams over here. That's my interest now. I'm not. I used to think I was a huge sports fan. I was just a huge getting drunk fan. And sports just happened to be something that allowed me to feel like I was doing something while I was getting drunk. Now that I don't get drunk, I have better things to do with my time. So your interests are going to change. You're going to grow. Go back to 161 and understand your unconscious needs, right? Certainty, variety, love, connection, significance, contribution, personal growth. These are the things that are fueling what you're doing. 
when you start to come up with these power words for next week, we're going to come up with power words and power sentences for the new year. When you start to do those, you're going to want those to feed and attach to your human needs. So when we start coming up with our, my last two word of the years have been relentless was two years ago and expansion was last year's word. And so this over this next few days, I've got a bunch of words written down and I'm going to start to call through that list until I find out what my one power word is. And then I'm going to start building up power sentences around that power word so that whenever I'm looking to shift an emotional state so that I can become more of the version of me that I'm seeking in my life, I can use those power sentences to focus back in on that power word. And that becomes my mantras. Those become my affirmations. We took the red pill years ago when we started using, and it was either we took the red pill. Now, a lot of people take the red pill and stay locked in the matrix with the alcohol and the drugs. All right, but once you step into sobriety and recovery, then that's it. The little pod lets you out. You do you go down that slide and you end up in the Ebenezer, and that's just the way that it is. And now you have this heightened sense of awareness. You have this heightened sense of moral duty. You have this heightened sense of creating an amazing part of your life. Those who stay in sobriety, it's like uh, they're teetering back and forth between being in the matrix and out of the matrix. It's like they're not willing to get into the Nebuchadnezzar quite yet. If you're a hundred and some odd episodes into this show, you have absolutely gotten on the Nebuchadnezzar. That's it. You took the red pill. You're ready to be more self-aware. You're ready to be goal-oriented. You're ready to question your beliefs and your decisions and your morals and your ethics and your values. Nothing is left unturned. That's when you can go to 162 and start listening for forgiveness and expectations. Step in, right? Release expectations for what it is you're going to be able to do and just and, and be able to forgive and be able to, to just be you. Who do you want to be while you're doing this? We talked about empathy. We've talked about stimulus. We've choices and reaction, addiction, sobriety, and life as habits in episode 171. Um, Go back and listen to 172 and 173. It's all about how I use NLP in my sobriety and recovery. And I could teach it to you. Multiple listeners have come and joined me in these classes. It's absolutely fantastic. They're in the hub. They're in the tribe. They're taking my online academy. They're they're in the Voxer chat, sharing their successes, talking about their, you know, their downtimes and, and working through emotions and their their sobriety and their recovery. And we're doing this in in this very collective, very invigorating, very supportive tribe. It's absolutely fantastic. It's turning into more than I ever thought it could be. And we have not even begin begun to touch into where it's gonna go. Come, join that. Listen to 172 and 173 to learn more about that. I think I did a hub episode too, uh, 155, uh, 154, 155 was about the hub. Um, Absolutely fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Just the feedback I've gotten off that has been tremendous and it's growing and I can't wait to put in some new modules going into the new year. Um, We got 174, day one, week one, month one, what it's going to be like to experience the new stages of sobriety and recovery your past goals and standards and your your standard loops and all at 175, 176. Um, you know, we went through morals, ethics, and values in 180, the five stages of change in 183, um, the archetypes that your um, adverse childhood experiences 
these are those traumatic moments that we're talking about, right? And, we, and as kids, we're ruminating on these adverse childhood experiences, these traumatic moments, and they become our trauma. And they start to create these personality archetypes that manifest in us, right? And that's where the people pleaser, that's where the golden child, that's where the bad kid, that's where, this is where these things start because of these decisions we made as a child that we didn't even know we were making. Our little prefrontal cortex wasn't even developed. We were still operating on the reptilian brain, fueled by our emotions. We had no clue what was going on. Adults were imprinting and implanting all around us. And then we were modeling the behavior based off of the tribe we didn't want to get kicked out of. It's, in, it's just insane to think that we are holding on to so much baggage from the past. And through NLP and through so much therapy and so much EMDR and cognitive behavioral therapy and all this stuff that I've learned, I'm able to release it, but by no means have I completely emptied out the closet. It's funny. It's like when I, so I, I got into this project where I started going through all my set lists of concerts I'd been to. And I would like think of five other concerts and be like, oh, maybe I'm almost done with this portion of the list. And as soon as those five came out of my head and I went and screenshotted the set list and I put them into the file folder, more shows would show up. And what I realized is as I discovered more and more shows and got them out of my head and got, you know, took the screenshot off of setlist.fm and then put them into a folder and labeled them and everything, my brain didn't no, no longer had to hold on to that concert, no longer had to actionably remember it because I'd already figured out another way to remember it. And I cleared up space. It was like deleting things out of the hard drive. And then all of a sudden, boom, more concerts would pop up. It was fascinating. And it was in that experience that I realized it's like when you take this traumatic and trauma-led moments and you take these adverse childhood experiences and you take them out of the closet and you lay them out and you work on healing them and, and processing those emotions and then it's like, oh, awesome. <sighs> I can release my ninth birthday when no one showed up, right? It's like, whew, and off in the wind it goes. It just creates space for another moment you've been wanting to heal to finally get to be the center of the table. There's going to be your, your, your unconscious mind is a repository for everything that you've ever experienced. So it's going to be in there. And when you, when you heal through one thing that just gives something else that wants to be healed, a chance to step up and take center stage. So the idea that we'll ever completely unravel them all is preposterous because we've got billions upon billions of these memories in our head, and we have no idea what they're attached to, what their anchors are, and what their, what their trigger points are going to be. But once you heal through one, and then that similar trigger shows up, it gets to bring up something else. Oh, cool. Hadn't have thought of that one. Let's heal that one real quick. This is the power of these healing, transformative ways of living your life of using psychology and science of the mind to work your way out of all of this stuff. Do you really want something that happened to you at seven years old to dictate your behavior at 27, 37, 57, 97? But that's what humans do. They let things that happened years and years and years ago dictate what's happening now. That's like allowing a snowstorm you went through in Colorado to dictate whether you went left or right in Pennsylvania. It doesn't make any sense. So experiencing emotional conversation, go back to 187. I've gotten a lot of great feedback from this. And this is, again, goes back to the worst case scenarios you feel in emotion. 
Experiencing emotional conversations can be difficult. You're not always going to hear what you want. You make decisions in that moment or over the course of time, whether this is the person for you or whether this is what you should be doing with your life. Like These are things you'll have to decide in your own world. But you don't get all of the information that's available to you until you have deep emotional conversations. Go back to episode 188 when I had uh, PhD Dr. Trisha Witte on the show to talk about the science of addiction. She actually brought like in-depth knowledge where I just bring sort of this peripheral knowledge about the science of addiction. We got into stigma, stigmatizing language patterns in 189 and no failure. There's only feedback in 190. All right. We did all of this stuff. We talked about PIMS and spheres and how I organized my addiction recovery using these spheres of career self-relationship and the four pillars of all of our spheres, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, and how they create this sort of like McMansion, this, these quadrants of my life. So each and every day I can know I'm working on my addiction recovery because I've put some attention towards my career, myself, and my relationships. And I, I pay attention to those three spheres by working on the physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual aspect of, of them. It's fantastic. And each day I get to go to bed knowing it's like, oh, wow, you know, by going to Costco and walking around, I got to, you know, I did all four of my uh, pillars for relationship. Plus I worked on some for career. I worked on some for self. And it's like by going to Costco, you realize you just worked on 10 different quadrants out of 12 of your sobriety recovery. It's like, wow, like nothing is just done without intention for me anymore. Going in the kitchen and cooking, right? I can rub my girlfriend's shoulders, give her a kiss on the cheek, talk about our days, have an emotional connection. Just, you know, in, in a way, we're discussing our morals, ethics, and values. So now we're bringing in our spirituality, mental. We could start talking about what we're planning on doing with our money or for our vacation or something. And so now I've worked on all four of my pillars and within my relationship, while at the same time, myself doesn't exist in a bubble any more than my career does. So by talking to her about my career, I've worked on a couple of those pillars. Talking about myself with her, I've worked on a couple of those pillars. Before you know it, we've worked on like 10 different pillars of my life just in this one conversation we had over cooking food in the kitchen. Career, self, relationship, each of them has four pillars, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. Those make up your 12 quadrants. So a second ago, I said 10 pillars. It's these 10 quadrants, but either way, however you want to visualize it, this is why it's so powerful for me because nothing I do anymore is, is unintentional. As I go out and sit on the couch to watch a TV show, and if, at least in that moment, it might be mentally stimulating both of us. Boom, there's a couple quadrants. We're physically connected. Boom, there's a couple quadrants. You know, where uh, it's we're discussing the emotions of the movie or we're feeling things together. Boom, there's a couple more quadrants. I'm resting from work. Physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, taking a break from work is actually working on work. Wow, just by sitting here and watching 1899 with her, I worked on all 12 of my quadrants. It was intentional. I get to get up from that and be like, that was a great experience. I'm so glad we got to share that. It's amazing when you have intention what you can shift in your life. So that's it. That was the year in review. Some great new material at the beginning. Going back over some old episodes. For those of you who are listening to this non-linearly, it's your opportunity to embrace this show the way you choose to. Go back, listen to some old episodes if you like. I'm absolutely thrilled and honored to be here. The big takeaways from this episode are the worst thing, the worst case scenario is you miss out on the best case scenario. 
right? The worst thing that can happen is you have a feeling and really ask yourself, who do you want to be while you are blank? Who do you want to be while you're going to dinner? Who do you want to be at dinner? Who do you want to be while you're going through your 12 steps? Who do you want to be while you're sitting on the couch with your partner? Who do you want to be while you're outside throwing the football with your kids? Who do you want to be? Then be that person. Set the intention. If there's any question about if what you're doing is being um, felt by the other person, ask them, what would it What would it feel like or look like or sound like to you when I was being connected, when I was showing you that I was trustworthy or reliable? Get that information from them and then do those things if you choose. And if you're doing things for them and you don't feel that it's being reciprocated, it's because you're not having a conversation about what reciprocation would look like, feel like, and sound like. If you don't tie sensory actions, you know, looking, feeling, sounding like, if you're not tying those things together, then you're missing out. You're just throwing darts in the dark. And that's how you poke your eye out. <laughs> All right, my friends. Inclusivity over exclusivity, the power of positive energy, release and flow. Every day is the greatest day of our lives when we wake up sober. I hope I didn't just pop your eardrum there. Shout out to Sunshine. You've been gone for a little over a year. I miss you, brother. As always, glow on. We'll see you next week for the New Year's show. Take care now, everybody. Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and Kwanzaa, and Festivus for the rest of us, and Hanukkah, and I don't know, whatever other holidays exist that I don't know about. I'm bringing you all in. Much love, everybody. Bye-bye.